Welcome to Podcast at Boatwright. I am Lucretia McCulley, Head of Scholarly Communications at Boatwright Library. Our author today is Dr. Wade Downey, Professor of Chemistry in the School of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Downey and his student lab group study the ability of trimethyl trifluoromethane sulfonate to mediate new reactivity or increase the efficiency of known reactions. The most likely downstream application of this new chemistry is in the fields of pharmaceuticals, pesticides, and herbicides. In 2018, he co-authored two articles along with his students in both the Journal of Organic Chemistry and Tetrahedron Letters. Wade, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So to start off our conversation, tell us about your current research projects and how they relate to these two recent publications. Uh, thanks. <clears throat> I'm happy to talk about my research today. It's, it's great to be here. Um, happy to be part of this podcast. Um, so I've been at the University of Richmond for about 13 years, and both of the projects that we published in 2018 grew out of a, a single experiment that we ran back in uh, 2005. So this has got quite a history behind it. And what we discovered at the time was this interesting compound, trimethylsilyl trifluoromethane sulfonate, which, which I'll abbreviate as TMS triflate because it's easier to say, has this ability to play uh, multiple roles in chemical reactions. Um, so for many years, people would use TMS triflate to generate some reactive intermediates, and then they would purify those intermediates and maybe the next day come back and use them in another reaction. So it was a very, very much a step-by-step process. And what we accidentally discovered that we could do was string those two processes together so that they could re- happen in a single one-hour or two-hour period in a single reaction flask. And that has, that's called a one-pot reaction. And that basis uh, is what we've used to build up uh, about a dozen publications at this point. And it all came out of a control experiment that we ran that went the wrong way. Because we thought we had discovered a very interesting catalyst, um, a terbium triflate. But we did a, an important scientific experiment, which is we, we tried to get the same reaction process to work that had worked with a terbium triflate as a catalyst. We took the catalyst out of the reaction to make sure the reaction didn't work without the catalyst. And what we discovered was the reaction worked as well without the catalyst as it did with the catalyst. So that's a, a classic method in science to make sure that what you're trying to report or what you're trying to discover is what you think it is. So it's a, it's a way to avoid having bad data. And when we ran this control experiment, our, our first reaction was to, to drop the whole project because it wasn't going the way we wanted it to. And then uh, I talked it over with my student at the time, who's a, um, a first-year student at the University of Richmond named Miles Johnson. And Miles and I decided to move forward with the project. And uh, we went ahead and, and studied the reaction more in depth, and we got a nice publication out of it uh, when Miles was a sophomore, and it was during my second year here at University of Richmond. By the time we got to the end of that project, uh, we had discovered a weakness in it, and we went back and tried to address that weakness as a second project, and Miles worked on that as well um, with another student. And over the next year, he figured that out as well. And at this point in the project, I had kind of stepped back and become much more of an advisor, and, and Miles, this young student, was the one who was performing all these reactions. 
And Miles got a second paper out of that second project, and it's kind of grown from there. Miles got a third paper out of this project by the time he graduated, or just after he graduated. He went on to, to uh, graduate school at Berkeley, uh, got a PhD in chemistry, went to Caltech and did postdoctoral research there. And then three years ago, he came back to the University of Richmond and is now a professor here in the chemistry department. So this, this same set of projects that's yielded me several publications has also managed to bring one of my students back. And he does very different chemistry now, but it's been really exciting. Um, and these, these two projects that we've published in the last two years are definitely outgrowths of, of what Miles did back in 2005 through 2009. Well, thank you. That's a fascinating story. I love hearing the history of that. Well, as you've indicated, your students are an integral part of your work at the university. Can you tell us how the Downey Lab Group operates? Uh, sure, and, and that's changed over time. In the beginning, I was very much in the lab and running many of the experiments myself. But as the students I've had have grown more and more experienced and they've developed the, the ability to teach each other, uh, I've been able, able to hand off all the day-to-day -day responsibilities to the students. So whereas in that first paper I published in 2007, I probably did about 50% of the work in that paper and the student Miles did the other 50%. These two papers that we published in 2018, um, I did maybe 1% to 2% of the work of this. So this is me thinking about ideas and, and talking to my students about them. And then my students are the ones who go into the lab and actually perform these experiments and, and push the uh, boundaries of science outward a little bit at a time. And in preparation for coming here to talk to you today, I was looking at this list of students who's on, the, who's on these two papers. And, uh, on the paper from the Journal of Organic Chemistry, I see Daniel Confair's name, who really developed that project from nothing. This, this was almost nothing, and, and she brought it up out of zero. Um, Danielle did this pretty much over the summer after her junior year and then into her senior year as well, and she went on to graduate school. She's now a, a third-year graduate student at Yale. So I like to think that this had some sort of influence on what she ended up doing. So she's a chemistry graduate student. The second student name on this is Ichi Lu. Ichi graduated just last year, 2018. She's now a chemistry graduate student at Northwestern. Uh, Elizabeth Hefner, who's the other student on this paper who finished up this project, she's applying to graduate schools now. Um, and I see similar things on, on the other paper. I see a student in graduate school, a student who's doing a nursing PhD, a student who's a pre-medical student, and another student who wants to go to grad school. So these people, these students that are coming through my lab, they're doing all these experiments themselves, they're thinking of experiments themselves, and then when I write a letter of recommendation for them, I can talk about, they did this at the University of Richmond. Maybe I had the first idea, but they were the ones who, who went along and did it um, and managed to get science, peer-reviewed science uh, out there. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of, of that oh, aspect of it. Yes, I'm, I know that you are. This is very impressive. Well, you, as you've indicated also, you said that you co-authored the recent articles with students in your lab group. Can you describe the collaboration and methodology that you used to complete the research and compose the articles? Right, so I'm, I'm kind of the idea person in the group, mm -hmm. and, and they come and bounce ideas off of me, and we talk about them. And uh, then my students go into the laboratory, and if I say, go run an experiment where you combine molecule A with molecule B, and let's see what happens they usually have an example of a similar reaction somebody has run in our group from the last 10 years or so. 
if they don't have something like that, they go to, um, they talk to me about it, but usually they're, they're researching things through SciFinder, through the online databases here at, at the library. They find uh, references through SciFinder to other reactions that are similar. And then almost all the references that we find, uh, the library has an online subscription to. So they look those references up. They can find a, a written procedure in those references that tells them how to do the experiment. They might check one or two things with me that don't make sense to them. Or they're too inexperienced to understand what this actually means. I talk to them about it. They go into the laboratory, um, and then they run these reactions. And the, the way they set these up, they have a little glass flask with some solvent in it and a stir bar that's a magnet. And they put it on what's called a stir plate. And the, and the stir plate itself sits under the reaction flask and has a larger magnet that spins around. That makes the magnet in the flask spin around, so it automatically stirs without them having to do anything. They combine other uh, reactants in there that may be solids that they weigh out and drop in. And a lot of the things we use are liquids that can be transferred by syringe. And that always gets my pre-medical students excited. They get some practice using syringes, but the same way uh, a doctor or a nurse would use a syringe, they pull a, a chemical out of a vial and then they insert it into the reaction flask. And then afterwards they do some sort of purification. Um, and after they do the purification, they have to do, we have all this wonderful instrumentation in the chemistry department uh, that allows you to take something that just might look to you like a colorless oil. And we examine that through a series of different instruments that tells us all the properties of that compound. And based on that, we can compare it to the literature, again, that we're finding examples of through SciFinder and through the online journals. We can find other people who've done similar uh, characterization of the same compound, compare it to what's in the literature and verify that we made the same thing. Or a, a lot of the compounds that we've made in these projects are brand new compounds that no one's ever made before in the history of the Earth, as far as we know. So if that's true, we try to find some similar compound in the literature and say what we have is very analogous to that, but it's different in a way that we would have predicted based on the structure of these compounds. Um, so it's, it's a wide range of things that the students are learning how to do. Thank you. And how would you envision researchers anywhere using your recent articles for their study and research? Right, so we, we want to approach that from two different directions. One, there's this basic science idea that, that's very appealing to the scientist um, where we just want to know what's going on at all times. We want to know everything that, that TMS triflate, this reagent that we've been using in the lab, we want to know everything that TMS triflate can do in case some other scientist somewhere needs to use TMS triflate or thinks they might use TMS triflate to do some reaction. And that's very much a basic science idea, you know, just wanting to know for the sake of having the knowledge. And then there's the much more practical application, which largely comes from, as you were saying before, a pharmaceutical industry, the herbicide industry, the pesticide industry. And, and those industries are often focused on the synthesis of very complex molecules from relatively simple, inexpensive starting materials. Easy to buy compounds that you could buy from a chemical company. Sometimes from compounds you could buy at, at you know, your local home improvement store. Uh, so that's the idea to take something really inexpensive and building up, up into something complex that can have a specific biological function. So the, the people who are working in these pharmaceutical industries or, or, or uh, agrochemical industries, they want to be able to make a very complex compound very quickly from very simple reagents. Um, our process, because it's what's called a one-pot process, is a streamlining 
of other processes that may have been known in the past but may have been taken too long or been too expensive to perform. We're making them run in a shorter period of time, less expensively. Um, we're skipping a purification step, which is uh, very important for what's called green chemistry, where uh, we're looking for chemistry that's environmentally conscious. So to minimize the amount of waste we're producing, if we can skip a purification step, which often is very solvent intensive, um, that's good for the environment. Uh, one of these papers, the, the one that was in tetrahedron letters, uh, my student Anna Takashima, who's now a, a graduate student in uh, Belgium, Anna discovered that she could perform these reactions in a very uh, environmentally friendly solvent called ethyl acetate, um, which makes it much more uh, friendly to industry as well. Well, thank you. And I know that you mentioned SciFinder is a resource mm -hmm. that you've used. Are there any other information or library resources that have been critical to you and the students? It's, a, it's the combination of SciFinder with the online journals that we have that's absolutely critical to anything that, that, that I or any of my colleagues in the sciences uh, do. And I imagine that's true, um, not necessarily the SciFinder part, but I imagine it's true for any researcher on this campus, how important um, the online journals are for us. For, for me or for my student to be able to just click on a couple of links and get to a scientific paper that someone's produced, it could have been produced any time in the last 130 years for us in chemistry, um, but especially the ones that have been produced in the last 20 years is a really powerful thing. You'll find that um, uh, even in times of political stress, scientists in various countries always want to be able to communicate with each other instantly, um, and, and the library really comes through for us in that regard. Um, for us as a researcher, for my lab, it's free for me to be able to access this, these articles because the library is paying for the subscription. It's also, for my field, it's free for me to submit articles to these journals. Um, but if the library didn't have a subscription to those journals, I would never be able to see my article once it had been submitted. So uh, that's been really important to us. Well, thank you, Dr. Downey. Please note that the Journal of Organic Chemistry and Tetrahedron Letters are available full text online on the Boatwright Library website. In addition, many of Dr. Downey's publications are available in the UR Scholarship Repository. Thank you for listening to podcasts at Boatwright. Your host was Lucretia McCauley. Editing and production was performed by Andy Morton. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit us on the web at library.richmond.edu.